Hey, hey Mike. Mike. Hey, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm okay. Could be better. You look good. Yeah. I like the haircut. Oh, I uh, did a buzz cut. I basically tried to give myself a haircut. After an hour, I kind of just gave up and did a buzz cut. So. All right. Turned out well. Yeah. Could have been better. Could have been worse. Didn't lose a year or anything. Well, now you fit into the uh, the neo-Nazi crowd. Pardon me? <laughs> I said you look like a neo-Nazi. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate it. If I become a guard at the camp, I'll give you special privileges when they round up the Muslims. Yeah. Well, what about when they round up, round up the Chinese? Hey, we're already running those camps. Well, in China. In China. Yeah, that's true. My name is Mike. I'm Sadia. And I'm Omer. And you're tuning in to Oats for Breakfast. In this episode, we're going to be going back to do a follow-up on our episode on COVID-19 that originally aired on February 9th. Or that's when it was recorded. It it aired on February 10th. Ah. Yeah. But uh, if you haven't listened to it... uh, well, that's okay, because uh, there were things that we said there that we now know were misinformed because we just didn't know that was at the beginning of COVID-19's spread, and it hadn't yet been labeled a global pandemic. Yeah, it was mostly in China at the time. I mean, people probably remember, right? February 9th is pretty early as far as this pandemic is concerned. Um, and actually, Mike, you're the one who's been sort of saying over the course of the last month or more that we need to go back and update some of the things we said in that episode. Mm -hmm. Yes. So that's what we'll be doing in this episode. And then we'll also talk about other things that that are related to that. So that episode was framed as a discussion of COVID-19. And at that time, it wasn't even referred to as Mm COVID-19. And then we also talked about the nature of the Chinese state. And so in this episode, I think we just to tie that part in as well, uh, one of the things we'll do is we'll focus on China's response and and perhaps compare it a bit to what's been happening in the rest of the world or especially here in in Canada and the US. So, uh, Mike, I I, I asked you before we started recording whether you went back uh, to listen to the episode and and you had said no. And I, me and Sadia, we went back and, and listened to it. And yeah, I think you were right to say that we should mm-hmm. go back and update some things. But but I will also say you were probably the person, not to put this all on you, because it's not as if we said anything different or, or tried to offer a different perspective when you said these things, but you made some quite statements that in hindsight... Were not so wise. Yeah, don't end up coming across so good. So, do you want me to remind you what what some of those statements were? were there oh some... no, uh, I, I'm pretty certain. I think probably the most moronic statement I made was about equating it with the flu. You know, uh, about the flu killing more people. And I think what we've seen is that's not the case. This is killing way more, and it's killed way more with the lockdown. So I think. Uh, that was one of the major statements I've made that really underplayed it and was probably in hindsight a bit, irris- well, quite irresponsible of me to make, I think. I mean, to your credit, you did balance off that statement by saying that, you know, one of the things that's different about the seasonal flu is that we have 
uh, no con- uh, vaccine and we have a, an approach to um, to it that is consistent. So it is a known evil rather than an unknown evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, one of the things you said, Mike, here, let me... Uh, to make you feel bad, <laughs> not, that, not to make you feel bad, just, just to bring it into perspective because I think... And, and this isn't about you, Mike, because again, I don't, I don't know. And I suspect that at the time, I probably didn't feel any different because I didn't offer an alternative to what you said. And I'm sure most people listening, you know, it's most of our listeners, none of our listeners reached out to say, hey, you guys are really downplaying the threat, the threat of the coronavirus. So I'm sure most of our listeners at the time were also okay with what we said, or it seemed as if what we said wasn't so far off. But Mike, you said, it's not a big deal in Canada. It's not going to be a big deal here. Uh-huh. And that you went on to say that in Canada and the US, so here in North America, we'll be able to manage it w- well, manage to keep the uh, virus under control, especially because of the experience of uh-huh. SARS. And I may have even said something to that effect. Uh, so in hindsight, I guess it doesn't look so good. Well, I think in hindsight, one of the things or one of the reasons I probably made that claim was, I mean, there is a general perception that Western healthcare systems are much better and much more robust than the Chinese healthcare systems. So even with the gutting that we've seen of public sectors and public services, if we look at basically just from a per capita standpoint between China and Canada, in terms of number of uh, hospital beds, number of ICU beds, number of doctors, number of nurses per capita, you know, in any Western country, whether it's the United States or Canada, they basically beat out China in all of those cases. So I do think that, uh, I mean, obviously my statement was incredibly unwise, and that's, I think, one of the reasons why I revisited, and I will openly admit that I was wrong, but I do think that that itself was one of the assumptions I was working under. And I think, you know, in addition to that, in addition to the medical resources, I think in this has been an unprecedented set of circumstances in certainly our lifetimes. And so, you know, while there may have been people on the margins who were saying that this is likely to explode into a full-on global pandemic, I don't think, you know, 117 days ago that it's been since our recording, we could have anticipated that uh, mm-hmm. our lives would change as you know, dramatically as they have. Yeah, and just to take the heat off you, Mike, here, I mean, whatever statements you have, you may have made on the podcast, um, so a couple weeks after we recorded that, me and Sadia traveled to the third world as if, you know, <laughs> as if a global pandemic wasn't in the offing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and when we traveled, there were some, maybe some travel advisories around, like certainly like, okay, don't go to China. Uh, if you go to China, don't go to Wuhan, that kind of thing. And then it was really in March, mm-hmm. in by mid-March, that we kind of understood, I think everyone around the world understood the condition we were in. So uh, just to give us people a sense of how the situation has evolved, so as Sadia mentioned, it has been 117 days since we first talked about the coronavirus on the podcast, which actually maybe perhaps to our credit, even though we didn't anticipate what this would become, we did talk about it 
perhaps earlier than lots of other people did. And so today is, uh, we're recording this on June 5th. It'll be out a couple days later. And at the time, how many cases were there in the world? At the time, this was on February 9th, it was only 35,000 cases around the world. And uh, out of those, 25,000 were in Hubei province. Yeah. And well, and at the time, there was there had only been 800 deaths. And at the time, Wuhan was under complete lockdown. And Hubei as well uh, had been put under quarantine. And that was, at that moment, the most, uh, the largest quarantine effort in global history. And today, on June 5th, globally, there are 6.8 million confirmed cases of COVID-19 and 395,000 deaths. It's no longer just China and some of the nearby countries that are affected, but of course, the entire world. I don't need to <laughs> tell anybody <laughs> about that. Uh, but also just some of the figures in... So at the moment, what's interesting is in China, to date, the number of confirmed cases is 83,000. And uh, I think 4,600 deaths. And Canada has had, by comparison, today, uh, as of today, there have been 94,000 confirmed cases and 7,000 deaths. So we have surpassed China. Though, how many cases in the U.S.? They have, I think, almost 2 million cases and over 100,000 deaths. Yeah. Almost 2 million. Yeah, 1.9 million cases in the U.S., and in, in our original podcast, we were, you know, one of the things I think I said maybe was, uh, oh, is in Hubei province or in Wuhan, is quarantine too radical of a measure? And I think that that was some of the things that was being discussed at the time in, uh, you know, Western media. But now, of course, there's been a whole series of like political posturing, both like very strongly for and against quarantines especially most uh, you know, visibly in the U.S. with the anti-quarantine protests. Yes, but um, not to get sidetracked, I also think that when we look at the scope of the quarantines in China compared to what we have in Canada, you know, in Wuhan, it was pretty much that you can't leave, you know, your apartment complex or your house, you know, it was under total lockdown for basically the vast majority of the people. And they relied on delivery services to get their basic necessities. You know, in Canada, the current lockdown that we have or the social distancing we have is nowhere nearly as draconian or strict as in China or even in places like Italy, which got hit incredibly hard. So, you know, there's still discrepancies between the lockdowns that we're seeing. Certainly, and, and there seems if uh, you know all the numbers are to be taken at face value, then the question does arise, was China really able to contain the spread of COVID-19 despite its population, uh, despite its population density? And if it was, was that primarily due to, um, as you're saying, Mike, the, the draconian quarantine measures? Well, I think it depends. I think for in China, the draconian measures helped primarily because, you know, it was the first place that got hit and it was already very, very bad. But I think if you look at other places in East Asia, which they were at least, which they made the basic preparations, whether it be Vietnam or South Korea, 
they were able to get a hold of the pandemic without resorting to the really harsh draconian measures. And I think it's good to remind people that the draconian measures were primarily instituted in Wuhan and Hubei itself proper. So there was an article on the SCMP, the South China Morning Post, which talked about basically the about the week before that led to the lockdown, I think in January 21st or 23rd. And it was basically the Chinese CDC doing basically going to Wuhan, doing a brief investigation and their briefing to the central leadership. And when they came back to Beijing with the briefing, you know, a few days before they said, and this was, you know, during the time of the Chinese New Year, they said, we have to institute this lockdown. And basically immediately, if we don't, we are going to get infection rates in the hundreds of thousands. Right now, we have to institute the lockdown, and people that are in Wuhan cannot leave, and people that are outside of Wuhan or Hubei cannot come in. And after hearing that, the central leadership mobilized and immediately did the lockdown in Wuhan. In the rest of China, what happened was that, you know, they still had the lockdown, the social distancing, but it wasn't as dracon nowhere nearly as draconian as what was happening in Wuhan and a lot of basically in the rest of China they were able to get it under control and a lot of the methods that they used were pretty similar to South Korea and Vietnam. So in the Chinese case I think it's also we have to remember that there is basically the China-wide response which is pretty similar to what happened in other East Asian countries and then there's basically what was dealing with in Wuhan and the advantage of what happened there was that once the once outside of Wuhan, when they got the pandemic under control, what they were able to do was to mobilize the resources from other parts of China to medical supplies and you know healthcare workers, mobilize them and then bring them all into Hubei province and especially Wuhan to treat you know COVID-19. So I think the number was about 40,000 healthcare workers. That was the number of healthcare workers that were mobilized from all the other regions of China, but especially from the northeast of China, to come down to Hubei province and to basically deal with the pandemic. Yeah, so that kind of centralized response is something that we here have been lacking, right? In the U.S., we see that different states are competing against each other. Uh, Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York State, complained at least a couple months ago uh -huh. about the fact that, um, you know, the, the federal government isn't helping in terms of procurement of supplies. And so when the state governments go and say, we want to buy masks, we want to buy ventilators, they end up competing against each other. And this is now infamous, of course, the Trump government's uh, inability to direct things centrally. But I think in Canada, we, you know, obviously we have compared to Trump, um, there is no comparison, but there is there is a lack of capacity for the central state or even the provincial states to collaborate so that, you know, resources can be placed, uh, healthcare resources, healthcare personnel can be placed where they are needed most. Well, you know, in, during the initial phase, I think in March, when Ontario was running incredibly low on PPEs, I do remember that Alberta had a surplus that they sent to other parts of Canada, you know, Ontario and Quebec especially. So there was there was basically those um, you know, attempts 
to do those coordinations. And But I also think that it's important to remember that China is a unitary state, whereas we are basically a federated state. So there's still the divide between the provincial and the federal government, and there are formal, basically, divisions of not powers, but also responsibilities. And, you know, I'm not a Canadianist by any way, but healthcare is primarily the responsibility of the provinces. This is not a federal responsibility. If you look at in China, you know, it is the central leadership that appoints the provincial leadership. And basically, if they deem it necessary to take over, they will take over. And there is that coordination. I think the other thing, there, the other factor I think is important to realize is that in China, they were only able to do this around February because around that time they got the pandemic under control in the other regions of China and then they started sending the supplies they started sending the medical workers so during the initial phases when they you know the hospitals were being overwhelmed um, when the hospitals were being overwhelmed you know there wasn't a lot that was coming from outside it's primarily once they got the pandemic under control let's say in Beijing Shanghai in Liaoning then those basically resources got sent into into Wuhan. In Canada, what we're seeing is that, you know, the two biggest provinces, Quebec and Ontario, we still have not gotten the pandemic under control. And, you know, it is a very good thing that BC's gotten its pandemic under control, but, you know, the population-wise, they are a small fraction of the population of the rest of Canada. The second thing is, I think we have to remember, is that the structure of the Chinese economy and Chinese society and it's not possible to mobilize in the way that they mobilized in China. Because even within Wuhan itself, you know, China has a lot of state-owned enterprises. So when those shut down because of the lockdown, the resources got mobilized and redirected. So if you were, let's say, a bank teller in the Bank of China in a major, basically, state-owned enterprise, you basically now are doing quarantine work, right? Delivering groceries, delivering foods doing uh, basic contact tracing. So they were able to do all of this and a lot of the enforcement disciplinary measures trying to keep people at home and you know all of those things, those were all done by government workers or within state-owned enterprises. There's none of that in infrastructure here in Canada because most of the industries are private. Yeah, I think you know, to your earlier point about the differences in the structures of government, recently our premier Doug Ford has been saying that the federal government is infringing on the province's rights to make their own decisions and announcing policies without uh, backing them up with sufficient funding for the provinces. But in Ontario, when the crisis of COVID-19 fully exacerbated the crisis of the long-term care facilities, it was the military that was called in. And so that as a quintessential federal body to be called in. So there's certainly... Lots of precedent for those boundaries insofar as they exist at all to become quite blurry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course, there's the historical kind of nature of the development of these kinds of states and the division of responsibilities and powers that the different jurisdictions in Canada have that um, in this particular case are not helping. Mm -hmm. Whereas a unitary state like a China or South Korea or Vietnam has a much uh, more straightforward time in managing a crisis like this. And just also 
to give people a sense of, Mike, what you were saying about the way that the government was able to ramp up the activities to manage the crisis. Uh, in So China, of course, is one of the largest hubs for the production of masks around the world. Actually, half of the world's masks come from China. And historically, that has meant that China makes about 10 million masks a day. And to fight COVID-19, 2,500 factories were converted in China to produce masks. And the capacity uh, was ramped up to 116 million masks per day. So that kind of deployment was what led to China's response being far more successful than what we're seeing in lots of other places. Mm -hmm. um, and in the case of the US, for instance, uh, where Trump has not, uh, what's, the, what's the defense act that they, that they have the precedent of? So it's, uh, I think it's the Defense Production Act of 1950. And it was a response to the basically, I think, the Korean War and also, I think, the steel strikes. And, you know, what it does is basically, you know, sometimes when you have market failures, what it does is that the government could kind of step in, at least, and to manage for public goods or for vital goods. And it could basically force private industries to produce goods that are required for mostly war times or various national emergencies. So Trump has uh, decided to use this act in one instance. Do you guys know what that is? Oh, for pork, for meat. Oh, I didn't Yeah, know not just pork, but yeah, so, so that uh, meat processing plants remain open. Yeah, to remain open. And primarily he used this to shield them from liabilities. Yeah. So, you know, it shows where the commitments and priorities of the administrations are, which is deeply unfortunate for workers there. Yeah. So basically it's because the meat processing plants as I'm sure many people by now by now know are major hubs for the spread of the virus. Mm -hmm. So they were coming under increasing scrutiny and there was increasing concerns that if the plants remained open the companies could be subject to liabilities including you know putting their the health of their workers in danger by remaining open. What Trump did is just basically gave them a pass and said, now you no longer have to worry about, <laughs> you know, putting your uh, workers at uh, risk. And there were instances, I, I do think there was, I can't remember the name of the company, but there was an American company that saw the pandemic in China and basically approached the federal government and said, look, we can make N95 masks if you are willing to give us a formal contract. And the federal government just, the U.S. federal government just didn't do anything. Just said, no, we're not interested. And in fact, it's not until, uh, what is it, April, that the federal government started procuring the N95 masks, which are essential to protect frontline healthcare workers dealing with the pandemic. So there is, you know, there is that unpreparedness. And also, if you look at the response within the United States, at least, the federal government has been totally absent. Whereas, at least ideally, 
it is these crises that you get basically the federal government stepping in and coordinating. But there are plenty of stories about, uh, what is it, uh, I think it was Washington State, the governor there was pleading with Chinese companies and the Chinese government in his official capacity as you know the governor, or you had uh, Massachusetts using the private jet from the Patriots team to import masks from China because a lot of the masks that were ordered by the states were being seized by the federal government. So the states couldn't even get them because as soon as they entered as soon as they entered the US, the federal government would seize them. So there are basically various back channels that they were using and it's the response was very chaotic. And this is just, you know, within interstate relations within the United States. There's also, you know, uh, I'm sure you've heard of the stories about the mask seizures, right? The mask orders that were heading for Germany were then basically seized by the U.S. and then redirected towards the U.S. And also Canada got a little of that experience with the N95 masks it ordered from 3M in the United States that were seized and prevented from being exported to Canada. But those eventually made it here, didn't they? They did eventually make it here, but there was that chaotic basically in the initial phase. Yeah, I think so much of the news coming out of the U.S. about how the Trump administration has been handling COVID-19, including, you know, lots of stories about corruption within the top Trump officials for the deals that were made that sought to benefit close allies of Trump's. It would read uh, as if, you know, something in, in the global south that we're more used to hearing. But in, you know, so many instances where seeing the response in the Global South being uh, much more respectable, I guess, like much more responsible to the citizens. And in a, in a country like Pakistan or India, when there are shortages of uh, personal pr- protective equipment for medical staff, as uh, terrible as, as it is, it, it's still, you know, we can understand it. Whereas in a country like the U.S., for it to be in that position for, you know, medical workers to be seen wearing garbage bags and rain jackets to try to improvise, medical equipment is just shameful and just shocking. It, it is very shocking. And I think in a way that what is very interesting about the pandemic response or just my own personal just review of what has happened is that it seems like every country, when the pandemic went from China to Europe and then from Europe to the United States, every country refused to learn from the last example. So, you know, during that time, as the pandemic was slowly spreading in Europe and especially in Italy, when the Italians saw what the Chinese were doing, the Italian, this was an article in the New York Times, the Italians basically said, this looks like science fiction to us. Like, there's definitely no need as Italians to basically implement the measures that the Chinese are implementing. And then, lo and behold, within two weeks, they were doing very similar things to the Chinese state to do the quarantines. And we saw how the Italian healthcare systems were overwhelmed. And for the rest of Europe and for North America, it's like, well, they're Italians. They're, you know, the stereotypes of Italian government. And then eventually the pandemic came here. And then we saw a repeat of basically what happened in China, the systems being overwhelmed, and the repeat of what happened with Italy. So the information was out there, but it just seems like we refused to learn from previous examples or basically people that were ahead at the infection rates. Well, and I think another thing to put this into perspective is that, Mike, you had said uh, near the beginning that um, in explaining your the statements you had made in our previous episode about the coronavirus, 
um, that your assumption had been that given the relatively more robust healthcare systems in places like Canada and the US, it would seem as if that we can, we can assume that they would have an easier time mm-hmm. managing a crisis like this. And I, I think that's a, you know, on the face of it, that's a perfectly good assumption to have. But actually, having a robust healthcare system is one thing. A healthcare system, for instance, that can treat, you know, lots of different kinds of diseases. It has access to all of the new technologies, especially in the U.S. for those who can afford them. That There's a difference between that and, you know, a public health system that can manage an outbreak of a virus like this, right? For which you don't need the greatest technology in the world. What you need is a system of regulation that contains the virus. And public health responses are actually very difficult to implement in, in countries like Canada and the U.S., where we don't have that kind of straight state infrastructure, where that kind of state infrastructure has been under attack for the last 40 years. And, and that's why we, we didn't have, you know, until very recently, a system in place for contact tracing, right? Whereas a country like Vietnam, far poorer than Canada, that was their initial way to manage the crisis. They said, we're going to put our, you know, we're going to trace the virus, we isolate it, and we make sure it doesn't spread. And I think you're right that there is quite a lot of irony there because it's always taken for granted. And I think we, you know, in our earlier discussion too, we, on February 9th, we made it seem, I had said that this was primarily about uh, medicine or modern 21st century medicine. But in fact, it's not, or or not primarily, as you're saying, about medical equipment or the advances because often in, in Canada, and especially in the U.S., the criticism that uh, the Trump administration has gotten more than any other is that they're not listening to doctors. They're not listening to you know, medical professionals uh, and instead playing politics. But of course, you know, it is a political thing to have a public health response and to have public sector infrastructure that's not just reducible to the public sector health workers, but, you know, as you, you were saying, Mike, about public sector workers more generally who could then be redeployed to make them more relevant to a particular situation. Like that kind of infrastructure and state capacity is political. And it's because of the politics of austerity and neoliberalism that all those capacities have been systematically undermined and destroyed. And and now it's easy to say that, well, you know, as long as we had the right equipment, if, if we had enough masks, if we had enough, you know, PPE, if we you know, had enough beds that that would solve the issue. Um, yes, and I do think in a way there is also, and the weakening of state capacities, I think, uh, especially in the West, I think that's uh, a valid point, but I would also highlight that, you know, China in the past 20 years has also not escaped the crutches of neoliberalism and marketization. I mean, you know, uh, compared to, you know, the amount of the percentage of the economy that the SOEs, the state-owned enterprise, dominates, it went from basically a majority stake in the Chinese economy during the 80s and 90s into basically about a third in terms of, I think, employment and maybe even less 
in terms of basically total output as a percentage of the Chinese economy. So there are those trends, although China still, because there's still that big part uh, or the SOEs are still a big part of the Chinese economies that are state controlled, that they can't implement that they can implement this. I, I do think in Canada, one of the things, I mean, I hope maybe someone could explain to me. I mean, it's not like we don't have this experience. We have the census every what, four or five years or ten years? And during the census, you hire a massive number of people or every election, whether it's federal or provincial. There are a lot of temporary workers that are hired to deal with basically administering an election in Canada or to administer with a census. And I basically was employed as a census worker. And I'm pretty sure with contact tracing, it's not, you know, a lot of the things that could be taught in a very short term, a very short time and to, do, and to mobilize. And also at the same time, because of the quarantine and lockdown, we do have a lot of unemployment, unemployed people. So this is not, you know, for me at least, this could be an avenue. And I think you do raise a very good point, Sadia, that a lot of the t a lot of the things that we're facing with COVID-19, it might not be a technical problem. It might be a problem that's tied to our political culture, in a way. Or especially in the U.S., it's tied to the political culture. And this best example of this is masks. You know, there is just a a, a, a very large chunk of the population in the U.S. There are just, you know, masks has become a very politicized issue. So I think, um, was it the provincial government that hired about 2,000 contact yeah. tracers? Yeah, 2,000. And over the last few days, there have been several stories in the Toronto Star about the frustrations that have been felt by frontline doctors and other health professionals in what is probably the biggest public health unit in the country, the Toronto Public Health, that even they are having a hard time tracing the contacts of someone who is a confirmed positive COVID-19 case. And so there are still delays and that process hasn't been ironed out and it's already June. Well, and our own experience that people can uh, hear about in the episode that we that came out last week about trying to get tested, you know, and what that led to. I mean, we tried to get tested starting in mid-May. This is by then, you know, any issues should have been ironed out, and it still took more than a week. And by that time, as as you know, listeners will know, we we didn't have symptoms. So even in the testing arena, things haven't been going well. Thanks for tuning in to Oats for Breakfast. Remember, you can support the podcast by going to patreon.com forward slash Oats for Breakfast and becoming a patron. And also remember that if you want to get in touch with us, uh, you can write to contact at oatspodcast.com. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Bye.